Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming back and listening. So it's been a little bit over a week since I've put out the last episode, and in that time, I've really been appreciating people's feedback and comments about how excited they are and how grateful they are to have this resource. And I will continue to welcome your feedback. A great way to reach me is through my Facebook page for this podcast, which is called Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective. Or you can search at MYBDMT. There you can post a comment, just kind of follow the page, and there's a link to my website as well. So keep the keep the feedback coming. I'm very open to all kinds of it. So today's episode, Susan Kleiman, who's been a dance movement therapist for over 50 years, talks about her work with eating disorders. I love many things about this episode, but I especially love that she clears up misconceptions about eating disorders and how there's so much more about the deeper emotional conflicts hidden behind the eating behaviors. I also like how Susan shared that disordered eating occurs on a spectrum, and even if you aren't suffering from a life-impeding related disorder, you can probably still relate maybe even from your own life or friends or family or your clients too. Well, I'll leave it at that and let you listen from Susan herself. This is Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective on the integration of our emotional, cognitive, physical, and spiritual aspects of our being into one more aware and whole existence. Hi, Susan. Thank you for coming onto the podcast and agreeing to do an interview. It's an honor to have you here, Susan. And I was hoping that you could introduce yourself. I would be glad to. And let me say also, Ori, that it's an honor to be a part of your podcast. I'm happy to uh, be able to share with you elements from my journey as a dance movement therapist and in particular a dance movement therapist working with individuals with eating disorders. Thanks. Well, I was curious, how long have you been working with clients with eating disorders and how did this become your specialty in dance movement therapy? Well, I've been a dance movement therapist for over 50 years. That's kind of amazing to me (laughs) when I say that out loud. And um, in the 50 years, I've, I've loved every population I worked with. I kind of landed with eating disorders because I had an intern who had to drive a long distance for the job she had at the Renfrew Center where I now work. And I lived closer to it than she did. (laughs) And she asked me if I would like that job, and I said, yes, I would. And it involved only uh, three hours a week or three sessions. Actually, it was three sessions in a day. So I went to the Renfrew Center and I started working with this population. And I had worked for many years uh, before that with people who were psychotic, with people of all ages, with the elderly, with disturbed children. But I went into this facility and I didn't even know where the uh, nursing station was. Hmm. And it felt very different to me. And it was a center just for women with eating disorders. 
and that was 26 years ago. So since then, I began to find my way using the skills I had as a dance movement therapist already, but beginning to adapt them as I learned to work with this particular population, which is very, very different than any other population I had worked with. So it's been quite an experience for me with some things that worked, other things that haven't worked. And I feel like I'm really fortunate to have been able to learn from the patients and to adapt what I've learned to a dance therapy process that works for me and works for them to special concepts of dance movement therapy that I'll describe to you soon, as well as to apply what I call the cognitive markers, uh, which were my attempt to articulate what it was that I did as a dance movement therapist. And I felt that that really hadn't been done and that if I could articulate it, maybe I wouldn't get lost in sessions Mm. because I tended to get lost and not know what was going on and wonder what people would think if they knew that I wasn't sure what was happening. So since I created the markers and identified the concepts in dance movement therapy, I feel like I've been able to develop a process that works for me over time. Mm-hmm. Now, um, before we get into the cognitive markers... From a dance movement therapy perspective, what can you tell us about the mind-body connections of people who struggle with eating disorders? Well, people with eating disorders have difficulty tolerating and containing feelings. Um, They often describe the experience of being in their body as disembodied, as feeling numb, or as if they were living with a stranger or an enemy. So helping them reawaken their life force, uh, connecting on a body level with feelings and sensations is really integral to their recovery. Mm -hmm. Because an eating disorder is such a bodily focused experience, dance movement therapy is ideal for working out with them. You know, the tendency is to work on a cognitive level and most of the evidence-based treatments are cognitive. In fact, all of them are uh, CBT, DBT, uh, et cetera, and uh, very effective, but they don't tap into the visceral experience of living in one's body, which is central not only to body image, but to life. And dance movement therapy is, uh, does that, and it does I like what the psychologist uh, Terry Marks Tarlow says about a bottom-up approaches. But there are top-down approaches, those are the cognitive ones, and there are bottom-up approaches that emerge on a body level from the feelings and sensations. And that's what we as dance movement therapists have tapped into and what we do so well. And of course, what I think we need to do is to be able to write more about it, to research about it, so that we can also become an evidence-based treatment. Mm-hmm. It makes sense to approach, especially an eating disorder, as well as many other diagnoses through the body, because as you said, that's, it's buried there, right? The, the cognitive 
issues and struggles are, are now, would you say, more focused in the body? Yeah, I think that they're detached from the body that so many of the people I see, uh, all females, all uh, women or teens, they're very articulate intellectually. But connecting on a body level is so different for them because they've purposely disconnected and uh, turned it down like nobody's home there. Like, like they don't know what it feels like in their body. So, uh, helping them to feel interoceptively, inwardly, is, um, is such an important process. And I think, uh, to me, more difficult to, to try to help them connect from the head down because it's all head talk. Mm-hmm. And, and it's detached. It's very clear to me when I get a group together or have an individual I'm working with that they tell me that they're numb, uh, their legs shaking like mad. They say, well, that doesn't mean anything. Um, I always do that. But it's an habitual, unconscious experience that they um, go through in an attempt to avoid connection with emotional issues. An eating disorder is so much like an anxiety disorder. Anxiety is so much a part of it, and similar actually to chemical or substance abuse in that the person becomes overwhelmed and is unable to contain what they feel or cope with it, turns to either substances chemicals or um, some other way to avoid connection with with the difficulty, with the anxiety um, of what's going on in their life and what's so overwhelming. Or uh, in the case of trauma, so many people we see with eating disorders also have had uh, trauma histories that the, the experiences have so scarred them that they uh, really look to avoid connecting in their body again and find it what seems like magic because all the attention goes toward uh, what we call emotionally driven behaviors, which are the symptoms that a person uses with an eating disorder to restrict food, to restrict feelings, to pile up food inside of themselves and then purge it likewise to store feelings inside of themselves and spill them out impulsively all at once or to binge, graze, eat all of the time and to uh, stuff the feelings inward and never let them out, feeling very small inside with their body growing because of the consequences of constant binging. So all of the eating disorders have accompanying emotional components. In dance therapy, we're able to address them um, through the patterns we discover on the body level, through their movement behaviors and expression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can you talk more about that? What are specific... Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, let, let me explain to you just briefly about the cognitive markers because they identify the process that's used 
in the kind of dance movement therapy that I do, the frame of it, that we want to be able to explore what's going on, to see what we discover, to acknowledge it's true, even if we don't know why, and then to begin to identify and make connections between the discovery and metaphorically how they move through life so that we can integrate that information into our behaviors and the reality of our lives, becoming more whole. So when I think about the work in that way, I know that as we work together and I identify and the patients identify their own natural movements, their reluctance to move, the tension they feel in their body, the tension I observe from them, the uh, awkwardness so many of them may feel, the tendency to want to apply stylized movement into the session because it's already choreographed. It's like a mask. So when they want to do a yoga movement or a Nia movement, it's like wearing a mask because we can't see then the natural movement behind it. So I always work to get back to that natural gesture and natural movement. And we begin to work with that and, and how unconscious the movements are. And when I have them take leadership and they say, I don't know what to do, how they look outside of themselves rather than noticing what they're already doing, maybe shrugging their shoulders, maybe scooting back in their body, maybe uh, twisting or turning away a little bit. And so I try to help them acknowledge, notice, notice what they are doing so that they can begin to make the unconscious conscious. And as we work together to develop movement, they begin to form a story, a kind of a shared story in a group. And we work to explore the story, to see what we discover about it, to see what's important to them about it or what's interesting, and to decode it so that we can see and understand the bigger picture of the story. Stories begin to emerge like um, it seems like we always move away or we're just moving our arms. We don't move in our torso or our body at all. Or um, we turn away. Looks like we're turning away here. Or we um, spin in circles or we pull inward. Or whatever they begin to notice is a discovery. And I simply acknowledge they're all important. And how do they feel about that? We begin to simultaneously as we move process between our head and our bodies. So we're processing on a body level. And I have them begin to work toward being the author of their own story in movement. And they decide how they want to tell the story, which movement should come first, which should come next, what should come later. And so we actually move the way they design the movements to be and we decode what it's about. And they can then see how it connects in their lives. Um, it could be a metaphorical story about the fear of losing control 
or of getting dizzy and unable to continue. Or it seems like there's a lot of sadness here, they might say. Or I'm so anxious I can barely move, they might say. Or I'm scared stiff. Or I was scared stiff in family therapy yesterday. And I can help them to acknowledge what they are feeling so that they can begin to talk the talk and walk the walk. And it's, I think, a very interesting and creative way of working. The skills that I use come from actually my earliest work in dance movement therapy with Marion Chase, mm-hmm. where she did talk, although people don't know that a lot of times, but we work to get in rhythm with each other. We work to understand and accept one another, or we work to express. So I always tell the women that what dance therapy is, is a way that we can work together to feel feelings, to express them, and to understand what they're about, how they fit into our lives. And that we're going to work together to um, understand more and to make it safe enough for them to be a part of the group. And so we may learn things that are important in order to make it safer. Like uh, if there are a lot of trauma patients or someone with a trauma history, sharp, strong movements may scare people. So we want to be careful of that. If people are unable to do a lot of movement because of their medical state, low weight, for example, um, we're not going to move too fast, or we're not going to um, go up and down and jumping and that kind of thing. And I usually keep things with this population at a fairly slow level and using instrumental music only that will join us rather than cause us to move in a a way that's uh, foreign to what's going on. Mm -hmm. As you're speaking about this, I'm trying to gain a picture in my head. And Uh I'm curious, are the the examples that you shared and creating the story um, and going through all these stages of the story, does this happen long term or is this within one session? Within one session. It may be all I have. It may be all they have with me. So I always work within one session. I may also work with some people individually. I I work in a residential facility, so all the uh, primary therapists refer to me for specialized work, mainly helping their patients become more relational and increase awareness on a body level and feel their feelings. In that case, I work to... Well, what I do with them is similar to what I do with the group, except that it's specifically tailored to that individual. I I focus on three main concepts, which are rhythmic synchrony, Mm -hmm. getting on the same page with them, helping them get on the same page with me, attuning, attuning to what's going on, attuning to their speed, their way of working, not being too direct unless they're direct, making it safe enough for them to participate to their fullest capability. I use kinesthetic awareness, using myself in a way where I am as aware as possible 
to what's going on with them without losing sight of what is going on with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote about that in a an article recently, and here's what I said. I said that as a dance movement therapist, I use the cues and signals from within my own body when responding to patients. So that's mm-hmm. what I do. Mm-hmm. And achieving and su- sustaining this level of authenticity is complex. And it requires balancing the knowledge from my own inner senses with my clinical knowledge. So I practice that daily. I practice that with them, attuning, being aware of myself, my own cues and signals, being able to get in rhythm with the patients, to attune to what's going on with them. And that creates a synergy, which, of course, leads toward kinesthetic empathy, which is uh, critical to the building the relationship and engaging the patient in a way that's safe enough and meaningful enough for them. That also taps into the mirror neurons that are talked about that have to do with engaging a person in a process where they are involved and have a role in it. And that's definitely important. So those are the three main concepts that I use um, uh, as part of my dance movement therapy process Mm -hmm. to try to understand and develop and focus and develop on whatever's going on in that day, trusting my hunches. Terry Marks Tarlow talks a lot about trusting one's hunches. And I think when we do that in the group, in an honest way that's not overly revealing, but it's authentic. It's a technique. It's also um, one that deserves a whole lot of practice over the years because it's hard to do, and and it's hard to be a dance movement therapist, I think. I think it's harder than being a, a sit-down talk therapist, but a lot more happens. And I think in a shorter period of time, a lot more happens. And that's scary sometimes for the women I see because they know that I'm going to understand what's going on. They can see that. And even the other feel thing I wanted, they... I wanted to mention was uh, Winnicott and his work on the true self versus the false self. Because people with eating disorders are very good actors a lot of times and very good at putting on a false self. Very efficient, wonderful team member, really competent, uh, close to perfect, that kind of thing. But it doesn't reveal the true self, which is the authentic self, which is what I try to get to then. Mm-hmm. All in maybe just one session, you try to get them a little closer to their true selves in that in those moments. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To to accepting and tolerating mm-hmm. a true real expression. It doesn't mean that it has to go to such a full range that somebody's sobbing or something like that. But it just means that there's authenticity that's occurring that is real and it's true. Yeah, it's not a cover up. As you're telling me this and. You know, obviously you use your own bodily felt senses to pick up on the cues from what they might be feeling. I'm, I, the word shame came to me. I'm wondering if shame comes up a lot. Oh, yes. and, oh, yeah. and what maybe what would be like the most bodily felt sense that you feel from this work? 
I imagine that's so deeply buried. It, it's yeah. It might be surprising when it comes back up, right? So it comes up quickly. Like for some people, the need to remain small and childlike is safer than being a full-blown woman, so to speak. Or there is one tiny woman I see now. There is a um, a survivor, and she feels safer in a smaller body. Interestingly, she also feels safer living in a small town. And we related it to, you know, on television, the small houses they have now, those tiny houses. <laughs> yeah. She would love one of those. So the tinier the space, the more comfortable she feels, the safer she feels. Although we have to deal also with the food issues. Um, I don't deal with food issues. The nutritionists do. I deal with the underlying emotional issues. Her need to remain so small and tiny doesn't give her a lot of access mm. to herself. And it certainly isn't helping her as she grows older because the effects on the body are ravaging from the eating disorders, from particularly from anorexia, which has the highest death rate of any mental illness. So that me that metaphor, I'm curious about it. Is that a metaphor for for shame that you related it to, but also I don't I don't know if you said this, but being as small as possible, like feeling as little uh -huh. as possible. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, feeling sm as small as possible. I had one patient who was uh, five eight uh, had terrible terrible trauma history, and um, she should have been weighing around 140 to 150 pounds. That would have been the norm. And she was at about 120, 125. No matter how thin she got, it was never thin enough. 
So at one point, she really lost a lot of weight, and she was 100 pounds. Mm. And uh, it was not good enough because her body image distortions were such that uh, she was not in touch with that. And by losing the weight, she wasn't dealing with her emotions. She was trying to reduce her physical size so that she would be less visible, so that she could be more invisible. Hmm. Because it wasn't safe enough to be visible. Right. So that's a lot of it. Or, or maybe a person has a history of um, maybe it's not safe enough for them to express a lot of feelings in their home, in their families. And uh, maybe they tend to be very impulsive. And so they binge and purge or over-exercise. Over-exercise can be very dangerous and is a, an aspect, a part of uh, bulimia. And so people have to exercise. It's, it's almost like exorcising the demons out of, out of themselves, running it off, running away. You can't run away with yourself. Right. And, and so over-exercising, over-anything, can cause you to lose touch with who you are. And a lot of dancers end up with eating disorders, and a lot of dance teachers aren't very helpful when it comes to teaching about the importance of balance. You can't get much better. They're never good enough, so they keep trying to do better. So there's all these emotional issues and ideals that trot along behind people with eating disorders that make their lives difficult, make it hard to be human to relax, to be who they are, and to accept and not judge themselves. Mm -hmm. is, there, is there something that you think is effective for them in the sensation of purging and, uh -huh. and the sensation of binging and then purging? How do you, how well, that, does that serve them? Uh Binging would serve to try to take in as much as possible, but then if one can't contain it, they have to let it go, and that's a release mm -hmm. and a relief. Okay, so that's what you were talking about before with the containing yeah. and releasing. Okay. Yeah, and just like uh, exercising gets you high, mm -hmm. exercising uh, serves to, it takes you to a different state gets the endorphins going and that kind of thing. And there's nothing wrong with exercise. We all, most of us do exercise, but there have to be limits and boundaries to everything. Right. You know, some people are grazing uh, when they eat constantly all day long. Mm -hmm. So, there, I mean, there are all kinds of issues, but we're, so we're looking for in dance movement therapy to deal with the emotional hungers rather than the uh, physical hungers. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I wanted to ask. Do you find that even in one session, you get feedback where they are feeling more fulfilled, um, they are feeling more their true selves, and the other goals that you mentioned? Mm -hmm. Yes. get a lot of positive feedback. Some people are very scared. For a lot of people, it doesn't change, doesn't necessarily hold on. They fall back into a default position. That's not just with dance movement therapy. That can be with any changing process, that process has to happen over time. But uh, being able to 
experience a feeling, to express it, is very enlightening for a lot of the people I see, and they're amazed. A lot of times I use a prop just to give us something visual or something to hold on to, and maybe like one of uh, Kimberly Guy's circular fabrics, something to hold on to, and we do our movement, initial warm-up movement, holding on to that, and then we let go of it, and we begin to develop the movements more without the prop, and I liken that to it's like living with an eating disorder, which is a prop in life, and then letting go of it and having to cope without the eating disorder. It's scarier for people, and uh, they see the connection. They see these metaphorical connections, and they really can understand about them. They understand it. A lot of them get it in their bodies, and that's why some of them are real uncomfortable with it. But even though they're uncomfortable, it doesn't mean it's not helpful for them because that's where they need to go. They see it in their bodies, and they understand in their mind, and they put two and two together a lot of times. I can think of one person with uh, an example of somebody with a trauma, bad trauma history, and her goal with me was to be able to move in the center of the room. That was a big goal, and eventually we did that. And one of the ways we did that was I gave her a koosh ball to hold, and she moved the koosh ball. She tossed it out in front of her, and then she would move herself into the place where the koosh ball had gone, and that let her move in a space that was different than her space in the corner, hiding. Mm -hmm. We can be really creative, use our creative process and dance movement therapy, and, and that makes it always a new and different experience. Right. Well, that, that metaphor that you just provided, that you provided her with a different experience that she maybe usually clings to, mm -hmm. that maybe doesn't feel safe. Right, or safe enough. Safe enough. Mm -hmm. So to be able to feel safe enough to make a change, even for a moment, that's a big deal. Right. And it, it seems to also kind of work on this struggle with finding balance. Almost like finding it's either balance. I either stay in this spot or I I don't, or I, I don't know, have a panic attack in, in this other spot. Maybe. But yeah. there's, there's a yeah. balance. Yeah, and even taking a deep breath and feeling that breath in your body. A lot of people with eating disorders tend to breathe very shallowly because they're afraid to use their body. Or it's like the feeling of fullness in the body. It may be uncomfortable to someone with an abuse history because it reminds them of the sexual assault, feeling uh, full in their body and their stomach and lower torso or feeling and feeling larger so that it's, it's scary for them to have that feeling. Being able to eat is essential to live, to living. So they have to eat and they have to begin to tolerate certain feelings and sensations in their body. And that's very difficult, mm -hmm. very scary. So it's certainly not just about food, is it? <laughs> no. Do you find that there are a lot of misconceptions about eating disorders oh yes yeah yeah and um, people just don't don't understand i mean i think most people don't understand i think probably they understand more today than they did 10 20 years ago but um, we often hear um, comments like from family sometimes well why doesn't she just eat 
Why don't you just eat? Or why don't you just do this or that? Or I think you look fine the way you are. Don't lose any more weight. Or I think you need to lose more weight. Or things that are really confusing to people and don't address the issues, right. the emotional issues. They're just talking about the eating habits and the body image, and they're not really addressing what's beneath that. What's beneath it? Or or if you ask about body image, they don't understand, and I think most people don't understand that body image, there are three components to body image. One is the picture we have in our mind's eye of how we look to ourselves. The picture we have in our mind's eye of how we believe others see us. And the third one is the one we address most of the time, the experience of living in our bodies. And then there's a fourth, it's not even part of the body image definition, which is then what happens to you when you have particular perceptions, like you think you're fat and disgusting and ugly, and you think other people see you way and you feel not in your body, what kind of actions do you take there? And they usually say, I isolate, I stay home, I avoid contact with anybody, I binge, I purge, I restrict, I use my eating disorder behaviors. And body image, they say, starts very, very early in life, like at birth. Hmm. So body image is not just about picking apart uh, your thighs. That may be a um, certain procedure some people use to cope with the dislike they have for their body or the lack of acceptance, but that's all that is. It's really part of a much larger issue. The body image is really an important part of the process and one that we as dance movement therapists are addressing from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Now, you said in the beginning that You've learned a lot from this role and had to learn not to be lost mm-hmm. in this work. Were there any significant moments in your work that really taught you certain lessons and really changed your perspective or your role? I'm not sure of specific moments that I remember, except um, when I was working on my thesis, You know, in the early days, we didn't necessarily all have master's degrees, and there were no master's degrees in dance therapy because there was no ADTA, and there were no textbooks or anything else. So you kind of had to get it or not. Marion Chase didn't teach a lot. She kind of taught by either you got it or you didn't. You either picked it up or you didn't. So um, I truly had to learn from a a gut level, bringing it up from the bottom up to try to then decode what it was all about. In my early days, before I worked with eating disorders, I remember struggling with what is it that is happening in dance movement therapy that is important here, and how can I help myself understand it more? And, And that's where the cognitive markers came from. As part of the frame of we explore, we do we explore in a variety of ways. We make discoveries. We make lots of different discoveries as groups, as an individual. We may see that 
people move only uh, from the peripherals, from their peripheral movements, or along the edges of the room, or that one person is looking really scared. We make different discoveries, and we acknowledge they're all important, but then some might have a real big priority for us. Say somebody's looking really scared or uncomfortable, we want to make sure it's safe enough for them. And articulating understanding that what's going on simultaneously as when as we're working with people I think it's such a difficult process and it, it's taken me a real long time to get that mm. and I'm just very grateful that I've had the time to be able to work directly with groups and individuals to be able to understand in my gut and to transfer that to working with people the people that I see because I sure didn't get it in the beginning. I mean, I did. I could repeat it. I was a good mimic. But I really didn't understand it as, as fully as I understand it now. And now that I understand it more fully, I know there's a lot more that I don't know, too. Mm. And I think as a profession, there's so much that we have not said to back up what we do. Um, that we really must find a way those who can do more linear work. I know in a way we're all researchers because we're all like detectives. <laughs> Even a patient is like a detective trying to solve the mystery of their disorder or whatever. That's part of our process and part of our growth, I think, as a profession to be able to articulate. So for me, the cognitive markers opened that door for a, a whole lot of exploration. Yeah, that's so interesting to hear that from your perspective of learning from the bottom up, whereas a lot of us, maybe past your learning generation, we learned at least in the same time or a little bit more from the top down. And sure. it's also really validating sure. to to hear you say that it took you a while and that it took you a while to get it. And to really yep. feel it, because I think a yep. lot of people experience that and still are experiencing it. Yeah, really and cool. and I, I think it's so, uh, it's so important to us, and it's so difficult to decode what we do. And it really takes a, a village, so to speak. It's such an interesting profession, I, I believe. And this past year, I was part of the, well, I'm, I'm one of the trustees for the Marion Chase Foundation. And we put together this book called Movement Reflections. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it incorporates seven years of dance movement therapists creating, quotes, sound bites about their work. And then paying it forward to another dance movement therapist, and then another and another. So there, there was seven years of that. I use this, I use it all the time to look for freshness in what we do and the simplicity of it. And so it's our history, kind of. And um, you can see the Bookmark Project on the, um, on the website, the ABTA website under Marion Chase Foundation. But you can also buy the book. And there's a place for your reflections. Like, um, for example, Martha Graham said, there is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all time, 
This expression is unique. And Tina Urfer, New York dance movement therapist, said in response to Martha Graham's quote, who we are resides not just in our minds, but in our bodies. Through dance movement therapy, we become more of who we really are. Mm. So there are like 50 of those plus old photographs from the early days before 1980, which are amazing. So I think it's a fascinating profession. I'm very lucky. I feel to have become part of it when I was 22. And I fell into it. And uh, I met these amazing people that scared the daylights out of me because they seemed to know so much. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't know anything. Yeah, I still have those moments. (laughs) (laughs) Don't we all? It's it's great talking to you, but yeah, a little bit intimidating. (laughs) A little bit. Uh, Well, Marion Chase always scared me. (laughs) She intimidated me. She intimidated a lot of people. I didn't never the patients at all. She never intimidated the patients. Well, that's good to hear. They adored her. Hmm. That's nice. I had one more question for you. Okay. So there are, there are a lot of articles and podcasts and people speaking about eating habits and maintaining body image and kind of the more superficial things that we talked about that have, you know, Uh this much deeper meaning. And everyone, you know, everyone, some information works differently for different people. But I I wanted to ask you for a unique perspective through a dance movement therapy lens about, you know, people who are listening to this, who can maybe relate on some level to the things that you were talking about, maybe not to the extremes that your patients feel, what advice could you give to them to build a healthier relationship between their mind and their body? Well, I think some of the same principles um, apply on the whole continuum of life, making it uh, safe enough for you to be who you are, accepting yourself, your strengths and your weaknesses, Uh, Feeling safe enough to be able to follow the paths in life that are important to you, to take risks that you really want to take, to forgive yourself when you have a hard day or a difficult time, and to not use food issues or exercise issues to replace healthier coping skills. I think surrounding yourself with healthy support is important, becomes your family. And there could be a lot of wonderful elements in a family. There can be people. There can be uh, people close to you. There can be a person that you see walking down the street every day that says hello to you or waves to you that maybe you don't even know their name could be a pet or could be involvement with with pets that help you feel more connected. Could be a support group or could be music or art or dance or anything that helps you feel more alive that becomes part of your whole uh, range of how you live and accept yourself. I think the forgiveness part is really important. 
And I think the grateful part is really important because I think when we, if we don't soften and accept and be grateful for what we do have, then we often end up feeling guilty and uh, not able to forgive ourselves or anybody else when when it might be in our best interest to do that. So I think a lot of times we do the best we can with what we've got, and that's what's important. And I can tell you also that for me, ADTA has been like an extended family since I began to learn dance therapy before ADTA began, and my friends professionally uh, gave me allies and contacts across the country and now across the world. And I could feel accepted by them, even if I was the only dance therapist in the state or in a city. And for the most part, when we are practicing dance movement therapy, we're the only ones in a facility. So it can feel very lonely. To be around like-minded people and to look for a positive cause can feel really nice mm-hmm. and gratifying. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of mirrors what you do as a dance therapist for your own patients is having people find a place where they can feel safe to be more their true selves yes. and feel more alive through whatever it is that helps them feel alive and in the moment in that flow that you were speaking of before. Yeah, awesome. absolutely. So we think alike. <laughs> well. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom. Oh, well, thank you for asking me. All right. Well, that's another one. Don't forget to check out the episode summary for Susan's biography. And please check out my Facebook page, Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective. You'll find information there. Feel free to reach out, ask any questions. And stay tuned for the next one, which will be episode 10. Woo!